Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikalskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is Beverly Gage. She is an American history professor at Yale, and I think that kind of understates her career, but nonetheless, she is out with a brand new biography. This one is called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It is available everywhere, and... Beverly, this is amazing to me, is that this is the first really full-length biography. It reminds me of when Sam Tannenhaus' Whitaker Chambers came out uh, about 20 years ago. And this is the first full-length biography that's a really true portrait of J. Edgar Hoover and the first real biography about him in about 30 years. So when you set about to write this all-encompassing biography, I know it took better than a decade, you don't do the research in a chronological fashion. So how do you take your research about this vast life, both public and private of him, and make it into a coherent biography in a logical progression? <laughs> that is an excellent question. <laughs> um, my strategy in doing this, as you say, it's a, it's a huge swath of time. He was director of the FBI for 48 years, and that meant that he was the head of a bureaucracy that produced an enormous amount of paper during that time. So even I did not read everything that the FBI produced or that J. Edgar Hoover said. Um, and so I tried to look for the things that were new and interesting that might reveal something that we didn't already know. And I also started with the parts that I was the least interested in <laughs> so that the good parts would be waiting for me um, as I got near the end. When you went about doing this and you would have it in your mind that, all right, I'm going to cover his period in the, with the, the six presidents that he served. And as you're doing the research, would you come about things that you didn't realize and say, oh, gosh, I got to stick this in somewhere now? And so did this project just become bigger and bigger the, more, the farther you went? Absolutely. There were lots of surprises along the way. Um, some of them that actually put Hoover in a better light than I would have anticipated. So uh, I ended up adding a chapter that I wouldn't necessarily have thought would be there about the FBI's campaigns against the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s. So we think a lot about the Bureau's attacks on the civil rights movement, infiltration of the civil rights movement, but they were doing the same thing to the Klan at the same time. Um, and then there were lots of things, particularly about the Second World War, that I hadn't known, um, big cases, as well as just sort of really interesting um, attempts by the FBI to kind of build itself as an intelligence agency very quickly under lots of pressure. Something that I found interesting, I didn't realize that he was a, a D.C. kid growing up, but you grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, but the fraternity that he joined in college, how important was that and how monumental was that as far as shaping his views about a lot of things in life? This fraternity, Kappa Alpha, I was really fascinated by. So Hoover is this pure creature of Washington, right? He's born in Washington in 1895, just a few blocks from the Capitol. He lives there his whole life. He works for the government his whole adult life. He dies in Washington, still working for the government in 1972. Uh, but one aspect of Washington's history and of this fraternity, he stays in Washington for college, uh, was the rise of segregation that's happening in the early 20th century and the ways that that really influenced his racial outlook. And Kappa Alpha was uh, sort of an extreme version of that story. It was a fraternity created after the Civil War to kind of carry on the lost cause 
cause of the White South. And when Hoover joins, one of its most famous members is a guy named Thomas Dixon, um, who wrote the books that became the film The Birth of a Nation, um, which came out when Hoover was in college. So it's a segregationist fraternity, and it really helped me understand where a lot of his racial ideas came from. Would you consider Hoover an intellectual? I wouldn't consider him an intellectual, but I would consider him a man of ideas. And so he didn't read highbrow works of literature. He didn't, um, you know, engage big thinkers. But uh, in fact, he kind of hated intellectuals in a lot of ways. He didn't like Yale professors, especially. Um, But he was someone who thought in very big terms and had some really big ideas about how the government ought to work, uh, what the Cold War and the struggle against communism was all about. And so I think he really was driven by ideas, if not quite being an intellectual. The federal government is so vast and not just, you know, not it wasn't as vast then as it is today, but certainly there were other avenues that Hoover, that, that uh, Jagger Hoover could have explored as far as public service. Why was it the what was called the Bureau of Investigation that attracted him? I think a little bit of it was chance, really. He went to George Washington University, which at the time was kind of a night school for future government servants. I mean, a very small percentage of people went to college in the first place uh, in the early 20th century. But GW had a very particular track. And so people went into all sorts of different government agencies. Hoover happened to graduate from uh, the law school there in 1917 at a moment when uh, the U.S. is entering the First World War and when the Justice Department is expanding very dramatically. And so they recruited him pretty quickly, and it turned out he was a really good administrator. He liked to think in terms of the law and systems. He was very good at managing files, right? And that's actually his real claim during those years, is not being a, a crime fighter per se, but just being a very good bureaucrat. Was his ultimate goal to build the what became the FBI up into the vast bureaucracy that it is now? Or where did he fall in that line as far as the bureaucratic side of things? He... In the 1920s, when he became the head of the Bureau, I don't think he could have envisioned what it became. And in fact, he spent a lot of that first decade sort of trying to keep it small and tight-knit. He wanted his men to be professionals and to be lawyers and accountants and investigators, and that was really his whole identity. Um, But he was also ambitious. Uh, He was good at running his bureaucracy, and at a lot of key moments, these new new duties came along, and he embraced them and went with them and learned things really quickly. In the 1930s, there's a big war on crime against figures like John Dillinger, and Hoover very quickly reorients the FBI. You have to teach all these lawyers and accountants to carry guns and to actually fight criminals. A few years later, the Second World War comes along, and he reinvents the FBI again to be a kind of domestic intelligence agency, watching fascists and communists and potential spies. Um, So some of it was chance, some of it was his own ambition, and he certainly liked being the head of this big institution that he created in his own image. 
I'm chatting with Beverly Gage about her brand new biography. It's called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It is available everywhere, and it's a fantastically well-researched and well-put-together and very readable biography. Beverly, something I always am curious about with the FBI, has it changed over the years, and even during Hoover's years, as far as who it answers to or who the director of the FBI answers to? I would say yes and no. So one of the things that happened because, you know, the FBI kind of grew in fits and starts. A lot of it was by chance. A lot of it was in moments of emergency was that during Hoover's lifetime, uh, there weren't very many mechanisms of accountability. Um, So when he was appointed, he was just appointed by the Attorney General in the 20s. Um, The President could have fired him at any moment, but chose not to, and uh, in many ways he became much more powerful than the Attorneys General, who were ostensibly his bosses. After his death, there were more mechanisms of accountability put in place. You know, the Congressional Intelligence Committees, the FBI Director is now formal limited to a term of 10 years. We have the Freedom of Information Act. So there are a lot more mechanisms of accountability, but, you know, fundamentally it's still in this funny state where it's supposed to be independent of the White House and the executive branch be able to, as we've seen, investigate the president when needed. Uh, On the other hand, you know, it it, it is within that as well. Um, And the FBI director is answerable to the president. It's always been a tension. Something else I had no idea about is this this situation where Hoover was approving wiretaps of Martin Luther King Jr.'s hotel room. And the part, I, I mean, I'd always heard that story, but I didn't know that these tapes were going to be released in a few years. Can you kind of set up that situation and what's to come? Because I think this is a huge thing that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in 2027 when, uh, when these tapes are scheduled to come out. So the FBI during Hoover's lifetime engaged in a very aggressive campaign, not only of surveillance, but of disruption uh, against Martin Luther King that involved everything from investigating his associates to wiretapping King's office and his home, and then ultimately planting bugs in his hotel rooms. And one of the things that came out of those bugs planted in King's hotel rooms was some evidence of his extramarital sexual activity. Um, There are lots of FBI reports about this, and in fact, the FBI tried to publicize this at the time, though the press didn't want to pick it up. Um, In the 70s, those recordings were um, uh, sort of locked away under court order, and very few people have ever heard them, uh, but they are supposed to be released. Um, in 2027, obviously into a very different uh, culture and very different moment in terms of, uh, of how we, we, we think about those sorts of relations. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens. You mentioned the different cultures and over the years. As you view Hoover as a biographer, did you have to take off your hat of being an American in 2022 and go back and try to put your mind in what the mindset of an American would be throughout Hoover's life to fully understand him? Yeah, I think that's always the challenge for historians is both to, you know, use the 
present moment to think of new and interesting questions that might not have been asked before, but also to let go of your own moment and really immerse yourself in the history. And on that front, I think one of the most interesting things to me was finding out how popular Hoover was for most of his life, um, how widely admired he was, and how many people seemed to actually like him and be very loyal to him, because I think we have this image of Hoover as this kind of one-dimensional villain, this figure that everyone loves to hate. And uh, there are good reasons for that, for sure. But uh, it becomes easy to forget that actually he was incredibly popular for most of his life. Did your opinion as a historian change about Hoover throughout this process for you? It did change. I wouldn't say that I went from uh, from having an image of Hoover as a villain to thinking about him as a as a hero by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty critical biography of Hoover, and I think that it it, it should be. Um, but I do feel like I got to know him as a human being, and I got to see moments where he really didn't fit with our image of uh, of who he was, his popularity is one, but there are lots of other moments, for instance, when he uh, spoke out against Japanese internment in the Second World War, one of the only federal officials who who tried and failed, obviously, um, to suggest that that was, uh, that that was a bad idea. Um, and so there are lots of interesting moments like that where he... Um, you know, remains loyal to a set of, of principles that I wouldn't necessarily have suspected that he would stick with. All right, well, it's an amazing biography, warts and all, of J. Edgar Hoover. This book is G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century by Beverly Gage. It is available everywhere. Beverly, a fantastic piece of work here. I know you put blood, sweat, and tears for about 13 years into this, and uh, it's an amazing product that we all get to enjoy, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. All right, well, thanks for reading it. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. With me, with part-time lovers.